Good morning. Like many of you, I have always been incredibly inspired by the life and the story of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And not just because of his leadership and action to overcome segregation and racism, which alone is worthy enough for his recognition and honor in our nation, but also because Martin Luther King Jr. was a great dedicated Christian minister and preacher. I've made two pilgrimages in my life so far to stand in locations where Dr. King inspired our country to be better by beginning the process of civil rights and equality for all people in America. One of those pilgrimages took me to the famous steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., where the very spot where Dr. King stood and delivered his earth-shaking, earth-moving, I-have-a-dream sermon is eternally memorialized to this day. And believe me when I tell you that we may call that a speech in our high school and college history classes today. But if you've ever been to one of the great black churches here in the city of Jacksonville or anywhere in the country, then you should know that King's I Have a Dream was not a speech. It was a sermon. Not exactly the kind of speech we hear our current politicians make by reading off a teleprompter. Now, after that journey to the Lincoln Memorial, while I was in seminary and interviewing for my summer clinical pastoral education program in Gwinnett County, Georgia, I also got the opportunity to make a visit to the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in downtown Atlanta. I have to tell you, I wept that afternoon when I was able to climb up and stand behind the pulpit on that very spot where Dr. King preached so many of his great sermons to his people that would eventually become sermons that would travel around the world. To this day, I continue to have no doubt that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. must have been one of the greatest American preachers in our beloved nation's short history. One place I have not yet made it to in order to pay my respects is the location of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s final sermon in the city of Memphis, Tennessee. Many of you may not be aware that tonight, April the 3rd, will actually be the 54th anniversary of that final great sermon delivered by Dr. King in 1968 at the headquarters of the Church of God in Christ Mason Temple in downtown Memphis. At the end of that powerful sermon, you may remember, King takes an unexpected turn, connecting his own future and experience with that of the great prophet Moses in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. King draws a reference to Moses' last days, when after leading the Israelites for 40 years through the wilderness, Moses is taken up to the top of Mount Nebo by God, and shown the promised land. Martin Luther King, of course, knew that Moses would be given the chance to see that promised land, but he also knew that Moses himself would not live long enough to have a chance to enter into God's promised land. Now, I'm sure that everyone who was listening to Dr. King that night and who heard him draw that connection to the prophet Moses, they all must have thought it was simply what a great preacher does, sharing a Bible passage he can identify with in that moment of his sermon. 
And I'd imagine even those who'd been traveling with Dr. King for all those years and who knew the constant threats he was receiving and experiencing everywhere he went in 1968, they might have heard that and worried just a bit more as to where this reference from Deuteronomy was coming from. Maybe they worried about it, but I also think that they were never afraid because they knew Dr. King always was ready to meet those threats and present them before everyone he came in contact with. Of course, as we all know from history, this time the words of his sermon took a very different turn. For the next afternoon on April the 4th, 1968, 54 years ago tomorrow, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would stand out on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis and be murdered by a sniper's bullet. I can only imagine how the words that all of those people have heard just less than 24 hours before must have haunted them for the rest of their lives. This morning, the church's fifth and final Sunday in the season of Lent, we are being told again the story in the life of Jesus when something happened that must have equally worried everyone who was there to experience it 2,000 years ago. Something which probably at the time no one realized would actually become the beginning of one of the most frightening and amazing life-altering moments, not only in the history of the Israelite people, but in the history of the world. The beginning of the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John we find Jesus doing what Jesus possibly liked to do just about more than anything else. He is gathered with his good friends and disciples around the table for dinner. The scripture tells us this morning that it is only six days before the Passover. And we have known for some time now during the season of Lent that Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So it doesn't take long for us to figure out that this is the journey that is going to end with Jesus's crucifixion. But the supper Jesus is having in this morning's passage will not be his last supper. But when it finishes, it will be hard for us not to figure out that this certainly was his next to last supper. This morning, we find Jesus in Bethany, just a short distance from the entrance into Jerusalem. He is staying at the home of his friend Lazarus, who he raised from the dead not too long before. The supper in the home of Lazarus is actually happening the very night before what we'll be observing next Sunday, when Jesus will get on top of a small donkey and ride into the great city gates with the shouts of Hosanna, by those people who had heard of his miracles and were following him. This, of course, will be Palm Sunday, and it will be what we generally look for as the main signpost pointing us towards Good Friday and toward Easter Sunday. But something is actually going to happen on this night, before the first Palm Sunday, that will reveal to those gathered with Jesus whether they want to accept it or not, the truth of what Jesus is really about to enter into. It is right after the supper, prepared by the wonderfully joyful serving Martha, Lazarus's sister, that Lazarus's other sister, Mary of Bethany, will suddenly enter into the room and she will kneel down before Jesus. 
Mary enters into that space, we are told, carrying something that is of tremendous value, a pint bottle full of the most incredible perfume of the ancient times. It is made of the purest of nard, we are told, which we know from historians and archaeologists today did not even originate from the Middle East, but it came from the Himalayan mountains as far away as northeast India. And it was always mixed in with rich and special spices to make the perfume intoxicating. It would have to be more expensive and more rare than even the frankincense and the myrrh given to Jesus after his birth by those mysterious magi from ancient Persia. And Mary brings this incredible perfume into the room. She kneels in front of Jesus and she pours every bit of that oil out on his feet. And then she takes the headscarf off her head and uses her hair to wipe Jesus' feet clean. Now, I know that even to us today, 2,000 years later, someone pouring out expensive perfume oil on someone's dirty feet and wiping it off with their hair would be looked upon with surprise and serious concern. But I have to tell you, This action would have been absolutely shocking to those men gathered with Jesus at that dinner table in Bethany. First of all, the expense of such a perfume was well known by everyone. Yes, it is, of course, Judas Iscariot who will openly complain to Jesus about Mary's action. But you need to know that Judas's estimate of the cost of that oil is absolutely correct in the Gospel of John. It would have been worth a full year's wage for any of the poor workers in those ancient days. Just consider it worth something around the price of a small car today. So whether or not Judas wanted to steal the cash from the coffers of the disciples or not, he is right to the degree that the oil could certainly have been put to good use for those who were poor and in need of food. The question has come up among scholars and theologians in ages past as to how in the world Mary of Bethany even had such an expensive valued commodity like perfume of Purinard in her possession in the first place. What those scholars and theologians have surmised is even more shocking and revealing, I think. As many of you know and have read about before, in ancient times all the way up through the Middle Ages, for a woman to be married into a family, she needed to have some sort of dowry to prove her place and worth in the community and her value, not only for her new husband, but also for her new family. Women who did not have a dowry were assured that it would be impossible for them to find a good husband. Many biblical scholars have been certain that the perfume that Mary had that evening in her brother's house could have only been one thing, her complete dowry. And by pouring that perfume on the feet of Jesus, she has just given everything she has for her future literally to the Lord. This is perhaps, I think, one of the greatest acts of faith to ever be displayed for us in the Gospels. And Mary does it 
because I believe she knows what's about to happen. No matter what animal Jesus will use to ride into Jerusalem that next morning, no matter what palm fronds or hosannas are going to be sung by the people, Mary knows that Jesus is about to enter into one thing and one thing alone, and that is certain death. And so Mary offers herself and all that she has in that last moment at the feet of Jesus. And then she even removes her headscarf and wipes Jesus' feet with hair that in that day and time would have only ever been displayed intimately between a husband and his bride. Mary knows her time with Jesus is about to end. She can see that in a way that none of those disciples are ready to even accept or believe in. She is laying everything at Jesus' feet because she knows Jesus is the Son of God. She knows He's the Messiah, and she is ready to lay down her own life to have her life transformed by what she knows Jesus is about to do. And all the disciples are seeing it happen with great shock right there in front of them. They watch it happen, and then they hear the words of Jesus defending Mary against the criticism of Judas. Jesus says, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Those words must have sealed what they didn't want to believe, what was floating around in those disciples' minds. This wasn't just some crazy woman who was wasting expensive perfume on someone's dirty feet. This was Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha, the beloved sister of Lazarus, Jesus' friend. And she was pouring out oil that was certainly able to be used more often than any other case on the body of the dead when they were anointed before burial. They may not have wanted to believe it, but the words of Jesus have revealed it to them before they are ever to enter the city gates of Jerusalem. Jesus is going to die. Excuse me, he is going to die. And it won't happen in 24 hours, but it will happen within a week when they will be standing in Gethsemane, when Jesus is arrested. And the next day, they will be running to hide when he is condemned to die the horrible death of crucifixion. But brothers and sisters, as we all know today, death is not going to be the end of this story. I believe Mary of Bethany knew that as well when she anointed Jesus' feet that evening. Mary was one of the closest devotees of Jesus. She'd been listening to his every word for as long a time as she could remember. She'd seen with her own eyes that Jesus was able to breathe new life into her dead brother and bring him out of the tomb alive. Unlike the disciples, she must have known from that moment on that Jesus was not the political Messiah they were hoping for to come and run the Romans out of Israel and restore King David to the throne. Mary must have known that Jesus was beyond that. He was a spiritual Messiah. She must have known that unlike Moses, Jesus wasn't being taken to a mountaintop to see the promised land and then to die. Jesus, she must have known, was that mountaintop on which Moses and all the prophets after would stand. And Jesus will become in that moment in just a short amount of time the promised land given to all of us. 
As the prophet Isaiah says this morning, God begins something new in what Jesus is about to accomplish. A way through the wilderness, a river in the middle of the desert. That is what Jesus is about to begin and about to complete. Mary is aware of it that very moment and nothing else in life is as important from that point on for what Jesus is about to present and give to her and to the world. For us this morning, just one week away from Palm Sunday and the Sunday of the Passion and just two weeks from Easter, we also, brother and sisters, know what Jesus has done and what he continues to do. Paul, like Mary and Martin Luther King Jr., knew what was important and what goal was above everything else, no matter what they faced. St. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ and righteousness from God based on faith. Brother and sister, I ask you, are you ready to lay it all down in front of Jesus for what Jesus is going to offer to all of us what Jesus offered 2,000 years ago and what he continues to offer, which is nothing else but everything. The greatest prize of life that has no fear, not of death, not of mountaintops, because we know the mountaintop and we stand on it in the cross of Jesus Christ. May we press on to make it our own because Christ Jesus has made us his own. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, we press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen.